Hello, and welcome to this Soulless Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit soullesschurch.com. Scripture reading this morning comes from James chapter 2. And starting here in verse 1, we'll read down to verse 13. Is that right? Yep, 13. I'm reading out of the New King James Version. James writes, James, 1 verse, or James 2, verse 1. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings in fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, sit here in a good place. And then you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves? And you've become judges with evil thoughts. Listen, my beloved brethren, has not God, has God not rather chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith? And heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme the noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin. And are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law... Yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. He who said, this is God, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become transgressors of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Lord, we thank you this morning truly from the bottom of our hearts. Where would we be? How could we see if it wasn't for the light of your word? So God, we admit that today we know, God, that we have fallen short. This being one of many areas, God. No man stands before this crowd today who is not a transgressor, who is not a sinner. We're all sinners. And God, even as your followers, we have these dark spots. We have these areas of our faith that we tend to control and manipulate. But Lord, um, today we need you. We need you to fix that in us so that we could be better conformed to the image of your son, Jesus, for the sake of our neighbors, for the sake of this church. We ask Jesus, have your way, speak to us, change us. We know you'll do this by your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, each week I like to start with the title of my sermon, and this morning... Uh, I'd like to preach from the title, Incompatible Partiality. Incompatible Partiality. Uh, Certainly what we see here in the book of James, this idea of being 
partial, of showing favoritism. And in a sense, James is describing how that is incompatible with being a follower of Jesus. It's incompatible with being a follower of Jesus. The word incompatible, if you didn't know, the big idea is that it's two or more things that are so opposed in character that they are incapable of existing together. This is what it means to be incompatible. You're like, yeah, I I dated them. I know what that's like. When two or more things are so opposed in character that they are incapable of existing together. Incompatible. Shouldn't does not go together, like toothpaste and orange juice. You ever been there? Like pineapple on pizza. You'll divide, this is is deeper than politics. Watch this. How many of you guys are in favor of pineapple on pizza? Okay. And now raise your hand if you're Italian, just kidding, all right? How many guys, you're not a fan of pineapple on pizza? Okay, all right, it's pretty split. Uh, Gordon Ramsay called the great, late, modern philosopher and prophet, Gordon Ramsay, (laughs) he called pineapple pizza an Italian tragedy. (laughs) I love that. One of the nicest things he's ever said, probably. Um, One of many examples. Um, Here's one for me. I incompatible, and a lot of these things are things that culture has brought together that like shouldn't be together. Okay, I'm going to offend some of you. Just know these are tongue-in-cheek, but carrot cake. Hold on, guys. There's got to be, I know I'm nitpicky here, but hold on. There's got to be some evil alliance underground who got together and said, how can we trick the humans and merge vegetables with dessert? Now, it's carrot cake. Like, If you want to eat carrots, eat carrots. If you want to eat cake, you're better off eating like cake. I I don't really get that. You wouldn't eat a celery muffin or a broccoli cookie. Anyway, carrot cake. I'm really passionate about these topics. Some other things that are incompatible in life. How about this? Small children and a clean house. These are from my life. I saw this really... The internet always wins, right? I saw this incredible thing on the internet, and it was, there's three things, okay? Now, this is a case where three things are incompatible. Two of them are, but you can't have three, and you get to pick two of the three. The three options are children, small children, a clean house, option number two. Option number three is your sanity. So you could either have a clean house and your sanity without kids, you could, have, um, you could have your kids with your sanity and a messy house, or you could have a clean house with small children and just be insane is what's going to happen. But nonetheless, I found that to be quite incompatible. Um, here's something I've also found incompatible. I've got two more of these. Hope you're okay with it. Incompatible social media and productive political and religious debate. I'm a social media missionary. All right. Who have you baptized? That's my question. All right. And lastly, I saved the, probably the most offensive for last for some of you. Two things that are incompatible. People who have good taste in music and country music. That's just my last one there. <laughs> last thing that's incompatible. Had to throw that in there. Okay. All right. Listen, I deleted the one about cats. All right. I'm being nice. 
All right, two or more things that are so opposed in character that they are incapable of existing together. Now, these, again, are some tongue-in-cheek examples of things that some of you we would disagree, but I would say should not or do not or cannot go together. But here in James chapter 2, we have um, what I would call a severe incompatibility. James is talking about an incompatibility in in chapter 2 here that is monumental, goes beyond anything trivial and funny. It's the incompatibility, listen closely, of faith and partiality. Two things that are so opposed in character that to be a follower of Jesus, you should be incapable of existing with this spirit of partiality. That's why, again, I've entitled the message Incompatible Partiality. You know, James, we've been studying this with James specifically. James has this special tone to his letter. he's, He's not afraid to come off a little nosy. He's not afraid to come off a little intrusive. Uh, he tends to be all up in our business, where a lot of the letters might give us doctrinal truths to ascend to in confidence. James is often challenging how what we're claiming to believe has actually transformed our lives, um, which is what real faith is, right? And we're going to talk about this a little bit more next week when James talks about faith, the equation of faith and works. But here, isn't it interesting how James is kind of still in that tone? Just the way that he describes this. We see this idea of the incompatibility of of faith and partiality just there in the first verse. And I'll bring it up there on the screen. It sets our tone for our text where James says, My brethren, again, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. Now, just some few observations here. First, notice how James describes faith, right? This is his tone. Often faith is something we think of as, as a thing that I have in my heart confidently toward God, which it is, and it should be. But James adds this dimension to faith as not just something I have confidently, but he describes faith as something I hold responsibly. Imagine someone's sure done that to you before. Hey, hold this for a second. Hey, hey, watch over this for a moment. He's describing faith as a stewardship, something we've been entrusted with. He says, do not hold the faith. He's talking about how we live the Christian life. What we do with this thing called following Jesus. How are we holding the faith? Yes, we need to know that we need to have faith, but it's also important in regards to how we're holding this faith. And notice the weight he adds to it. The faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he even wants to give it an extra. He emboldens it even more, and he says, the Lord of glory. In other words, he's saying the way that we live out this faith, it's not a small thing. We have the tendency with how we hold the faith of Jesus Christ to potentially get in the way of people seeing who Jesus is. We do not want that. We we don't ever want to hold this thing lightly. He's reminding us it's the faith not of America. It's not the faith of tradition and routine. It's not the faith of emotion. It's not the faith of me. It's not your faith. It's not my faith. This whole thing belongs to Jesus. This is his faith. It's the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the weight there, the Lord of glory. In other words, Jesus is the centerpiece of the Christian faith. He's the one we're following. And he will, from time to time, cause us to neglect and forsake things that we've been clinging to in order to follow him. He says things like, if anyone wants to be my disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The idea here is that as Christians... We must keep Jesus where? Right at the center. 
He's got to be in the middle. And there's such a, listen, the reason why this is so important, the reason why we beat this drum all the time is because it's not our natural default. Our natural default is not to follow Jesus, the Lord of glory, into the Christian life that he's called us to. Our natural default is to make it things that it's not. It's to create rules that don't exist there. It's to create justifications of why I'm still holding on to my life and behaving this way. And James is saying at the end of time, the test is not going to be, were you a good enough Christian compared to your own version of Christianity? It's, did you follow Jesus? Did you hold the faith of Jesus, the Lord of glory? We see the weight of that. And as we are seeking to be faithful to Jesus, who's the senior pastor of this church, who is the king over all of our lives, James says we would be wise to do that without having partiality. Let it be without partiality. If we're going to be true followers of Jesus, there should be no trace of what he calls this thing partiality. This is true faith. This is true following Jesus. What does it look like to follow Jesus? No partiality, or what some of your Bibles might translate favoritism. What does this word mean? Partiality, this thing that's incompatible with following Jesus, the Lord of glory, is to show favor or to give preference to one kind of a person over another. It's showing favor or giving preference to one kind of a person over another. We all have that kind of person that we like to show favor to and give preference toward. And on the other hand, this is the nature of partiality. Partiality goes in two directions. We see it as an example here in James 2. He uses the illustration of the tendency in the church too. I still see this. I see the temptation of this. I'll confess that. To show special favor to the rich over the poor. And it's a, two, it's a two-way street. It's got double ramifications because in partiality, when you uplift one, what you end up doing is putting down the other. So any sort of racial supremacy does this. Do we know this? When you uplift one race or, or culture or ethnic background, you by proxy and by default, you lower the others. Partiality. Showing or giving preference to one kind of person over another. I used to read this and be a little confused. Like, does this mean I'm not allowed to have best friends? Like, that's not what this means. It doesn't mean delete your favorites list on your iPhone, okay? This is not talking about have people who are sticking close to you in your life. This is talking about prejudice. This is talking about catering to certain kinds of people at the neglect of others. And let's make this clear. This is incompatible with being a follower of Jesus. Racism is incompatible with following Jesus. It doesn't exist. When you get to heaven, a lot of races, a lot of backgrounds, a lot of cultures. The way that Galatians says it is that now in Christ, there is no longer Jew or Gentile. There's no longer male or female. We call that sexism when there's partiality in that world. There's no longer slave nor free. The, the racial boundaries that used to divide us, the, the, um, the, the gender boundaries that used to divide us and give some of us an upper hand over the others, the socioeconomic back, backgrounds, the financial divides that would divide us in a place as affluent as Boca Raton is obliterated through Jesus. Jesus creates this one new man. And in this one new man, in his church, he doesn't have respect for certain kinds of people. 
Like, oh, I really need them in this church. Wow, I just saw their bank account. First time I saw that, I was busy looking at Pluto or something, and I wasn't able to, to get a good look. This is not how it works. God's showing favor or partiality to one person over another. And this is one example of many, the rich and the poor. Uh, today, let me give you some examples of how we might tend to give preference to one kind of person over another. You have, of course, the example of race and, and skin and cultural background. You have gender. That for some reason, we, we know that there's God-given roles in the church uh, for men to serve in certain capacities. But for some reason, a lot of times that translates to like women don't have a voice and that men have a greater voice than women. And, and it's the subtle form of, of sexism. Then you have sexuality. Well, this is someone's identification. This is where they stand. This is who they believe that they are. And so, ooh, I, okay, I don't favor that person. I favor these kinds of people who have it figured out. Or I, I, This is one I'm definitely guilty of. Uh, like personality quirks. You favor certain kinds of personalities over others, and you think it's love, and it's tough love, but really you're just not being loving as Christ loves, and Christ loves those difficult people that we tend to push away and show favoritism to others. Religious backgrounds. Love hearing Caitlin describe her missions journey to the Muslim world. For God so loved the Muslim world. Do you know that, that he gave his only begotten son? This, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about this broad view of God's love for all people that we tend to neglect. Uh, I notice this too in the church. I think especially we tend to um, give special preference to gifting and charisma. And we go, man, let me, let me use that in some way. Cultural background, even decorative features. That's the only way I could think to say it because there's so many versions of this. But, you know, by outward appearance, we, we, we show partiality. We make assumptions. We draw stereotypes because this person has tattoos or this person dresses a certain way. And we could just keep going down the list. Another big one today, I think, with, with the world of social media is just someone's ability to influence. Like, influence is a big touch point today. Like, if someone has influence, i got to get close to them. It's amazing how when your Instagram blows up, how many new friends you get. Seen that happen. Uh, not to me personally, but, um, and, and this is what partiality is. At the end of the day, it seems very unloving, but it's really just, it's, it's just, at the end of the day, it's selfish. It's manipulation. It's how do I use, that's partiality in favor, how do I use this person to get what I need from them? And on the other hand, it was um, Malcolm Forbes, who started Forbes magazine, who I, I found is the most consistent one to quote this, and I, many of you have heard this, but Malcolm Forbes said this. It sounds like something Jesus would say. He said, you can easily judge the character of a man by how he treats those who can do nothing for him. I've heard it said that you can tell a lot about a person by how they treat people they don't think they need. Favoritism. James is going to lay it out for us. He lays it out for us. This is incompatible with being a follower of Jesus. And here's a few reasons why. Let's look at these. He gives us three reasons I see here why partiality is incompatible with faith. Um, the first is because of how God sees worth. Let's start here. Because of how God sees worth, human worth. He gives an example of partiality. He says, for if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention. Key word there is pay. You pay for what's worth it. It's a cost. It's valuable to you. You pay attention to the one wearing fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place. The poor man, stand there. Or here, you can have a seat at my feet. You've shown 
partiality. So what do we have here? In, in this introductory illustration of partiality, we have human value systems. We have one person who's considered worth more than the other. And that worth, the human worth here, is directly connected to financial wealth. And as funny, we might look at that from a distance and go, yeah, that's a thing there, but it's a thing here. It's a thing here. It's a thing in our culture. It's a, we actually use this phrase. When we want to know how much money does someone make, we ask the question, how much are they worth? How much are they worth? And that's assuming that worth is connected to wealth, isn't it? And Jesus is flipping that on its head. And he's calling out a, a human value system that's deeply flawed and deeply, deeply broken. Um, and the reason why it's deeply broken is because this is a value system here of human worth that's dependent on what we would call extrinsic value. Can everyone say that? Say extrinsic with me. Let's try that again. Say extrinsic. Now let's say extrinsic value. We did it. All right. Extrinsic value. The word extrinsic means not part of the essential nature of someone or something. These are value judgments based upon something that has come to the individual, that is on the outside of the individual, that, that is projected upon the individual, something fleeting. So a lot of us, let me say this, a lot of us, the reason why we struggle with our identity in Christ is because we base our value on extrinsic things. So the second your gift goes away, are you still valuable? The second your business is gone, are you still valuable? The second you're not killing it on social media and not getting the likes and the follows you want, are you still valuable? Well, you certainly are because those are extrinsic things. Those are external things. And where this kind of human value system that causes us to look at a rich man and a poor man and pay more attention and give more attention and care to the rich man, what it leads us to is to two errors. It leads us first to too high a view of man and on the other end, too low a view of man. This is really big and popular right now. I think the church has a lot to speak into this hot topic in culture, especially in the world of like social media marketing. Every other day I get this sponsored ad by some other like influencer and I look at his followers and it's like 200 people, but it's okay. And you get these ads and it's like, you know, and it's like all these like pep talks and self-esteem talks. And I just really feel the church has a lot to speak into this if we could first live this. There's a lot of conversation and confusion today about what is a human being worth? And there's so many directions we can go in with this when we talk about abortion rights, when we talk about a lot of different things there. But when we talk about the worth of a human, we're talking about how do we determine someone's value? And again, the error is often is we either elevate too high, which Romans says not to do that. Do you know that verse? It's, I have it written down. It's Romans 12, verse, verse 3. It says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. There's a danger there in our culture. I think we tend to do that. Um, Without God, that's a quick error. This was the first sin of humanity, right? You're not enough as who you are made in the image of God. You need to eat this fruit so that you can become like God, so you can get the spark of the divine within you. And so there's a lot of worldviews and religions out there today that are trying to you know, help you be the God that you are, to, to you know, unleash the divine within, and that's heresy. That's from the pit of hell. It's the same temptation as Satan himself. Too high a view of self. And even in the church, I hear this preached sometimes. Like, you're awesome. Like, like God needs you. Cheer up. Like, you're, you're, you're the winner. And, and listen, like, I get the bad side of it. We'll talk about that in a second. But there's a danger. There's a danger 
in thinking highly, too highly of yourself, higher than you ought to think. But there's also the equal danger. Let's, let's beat up on this for a second. There's the danger, too, of thinking way too low of yourself in the name of humility, which is really called false humility. We might call low self esteem and this is what happens with extrinsic value you're either as high as your last at bat right or you strike out and now you're you're low or you don't look the way you used to look or you don't have the same things you used to have so now you're low too low of you of self we see that there with the poor man and we have this certainly today in the sciences where one end of the spectrum leads us to be god ourselves the under other end of the spectrum when you remove the factor that human beings are sacredly made in the very image of God, you end up with people who are no different than any other animal. We're just part of the animal kingdom here. We're just primates with iPhones is, is what we are, you know. That's just kind of what we've become. We've evolved into being these highly advanced creatures. And there is no basis for meaning, purpose, or morality in that. And the atheists nowadays, I love how they're just not arguing. They're like, yep. Yeah, we have, to, we have to make that up. And that's where this also can lead you. So worthlessness to self-worthiness, it's kind of these two dangerous ends of the spectrum. And what do we need in the midst of all of this confusion, this back and forth of extrinsic ups and downs? We need to see what God sees about worth. Amen? This is what our country needs. This is what your friends need. This is what our culture needs. This is what, this is what Andrew Lundy desperately needs not to think of himself too highly, not to stump myself so low to the ground in false humility that I forget that I am made in the image of God. There needs to be this remnant of followers of Jesus in this generation that say, this is who I am in Christ. This is who Jesus says I am, which is the most important reality of who I am. And this is where you get this thing called not extrinsic value, but intrinsic value. Extrinsic is this thing that's separate. It's from the outside, but intrinsic is something that belongs naturally. It's essential. It's part of our DNA, and this exists within us. Human beings, I want to say this, have intrinsic value. You are valuable because of God. Without God, we would be nothing but the dust that we came from. But because of God breathing the breath of life into humanity and putting his image on us, every single human being, born, unborn, black or white, male or female, Muslim or Christian, is made in the image of God and has the stamp of God's value and worth on them. That's what God has done. Value. And Jesus, we know, he, he affirmed this. He was the expression of the fact that God loves the world. God actually loves people. He actually, does. he actually sent his son Jesus into the world because he loves people. The Bible tells us that. He so loved the world. And Jesus modeled this so well. We see this with Jesus multiple occasions. One of my favorite is Matthew chapter 12 where Jesus is approached by those that were trying to trap him. They were always trying to trick him with little questions and they... They, um, they brought him a man with a withered hand, and they said to Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Here's a man. He's got an issue. You could heal him, but it's the Sabbath. You'd be breaking the law. Is that an okay thing to do? And Jesus said to them, I love this story. He goes, what man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? This is Matthew 12. Jesus says, of much more value then is a man, how much more value then is a man than a sheep? 
Like, that's just basic. That's Jesus saying humans have greater value than animals. It's weird. Like, we live in this culture today where people will save their pet over a human. And it's cute a little bit. It's also a little crazy. And it's, it, it, there, there gets to these points where people are broken in their understanding of what people are and how much people matter to God. He values people. There's this other great story where Jesus just kind of affirms the value of people. There's this demon-possessed man who's been, who's been bound for years, cutting himself, tormented, uh, an outcast, ostracized from, from his, his people, from society. And Jesus comes across the Sea of Galilee in a boat. It's Mark 5. And he comes across this man, and Jesus delivers this man with just a word. But, but before he does that, he has a conversation with the demons that are possessing this man. And notice I said demons. When Jesus said, what is your name? They replied with legion, which was a military battalion. This is thousands, potentially, of demons. As Jesus was going to cast out these demons, they asked, hey, Jesus, can we have your permission? As we're cast, I love that, Jesus. Can I, even the demons have to ask Jesus for permission. Come on. And they said, Jesus, can you give me permission, us as demons, to go into the herd of swine over there? And the Bible says Jesus gave a word. That's all he did. And the demons are cast out. They go into this herd of swine, and they, the Bible says they rush violently down this ravine into the sea. 2,000, it says. 2,000. Now, it, what's interesting about that is that in that day and age, th- this is not just some random 2,000 pigs just like pigging along. Like, hey, what's going on? Um, this is someone's livestock. Many scholars would believe this. It's, it makes sense. There, there's, there's a herd of them. In this day and age, one pig, about 300 bucks on the low end. We're talking about, what is this, $600,000? Over half a million dollars that Jesus throws over a cliff for one person. And what won't we do for one person? What do we value? Who do we value? Who don't we value? I think what's interesting about this rich man is certainly it's the care that he gets. But can I draw our attention to verse 3? You pay attention to the rich man. I think that's the convicting part, isn't it? You can really tell a lot about your human value system and how much God has shaped it. And you can really tell about who you value based upon who gets your attention. That's your time. That's your focus, that's your love, that's your care. And who are the people in your life? I've had to create my own list, so now you've got to do it. Who are the people in your life that you realize right now, I'm not giving them the attention, and wow, it's because I'm partial. I give this, these people attention because they're easy. I give these people attention for whatever other extrinsic reason, but this is the first reason why Partiality is incompatible with following Jesus because of how God sees worth. And here's what James would, or sorry, this is Philippians 2. Just pretend it doesn't say James. Russ has been telling me that he's going to start fixing my typos on my slides, so hopefully next week. This should say Philippians 2, and I don't even think it's verse 1. I think it's like verse 3. Pretend that doesn't exist there in the bottom, but this is, this is in the Bible, all right? <laughs> It says this, Paul writes this in Philippians 2, here should be our posture now. As the, and by the way, the only people who can do this are people who are secure in their identity in Jesus. When you know who you are in Christ, you could actually let nothing be done through selfish ambition trying to get an identity because you have an identity in Christ. And it's not done through conceit in your pride, but in lowly, you can actually have a lowly mind now because now it's not self-pity, now it's humility. And in lowliness of mind, let each esteem 
others esteem, worth, value others better than ourselves. So we understand it this way. From God's perspective, all of humanity is equally made in his image, not one more than the other. And so for us, we recognize this, and what it leads us to do is not to to break theology and say, I'm not worth the rest of humanity, but it causes us to be like Jesus, who was in the form of God, who had equality with God, and he became a man, made himself low. We can do the same and love those who we feel tend to not deserve our attention because of how God sees worth. Number two, write down this, uh, my final two points here in five minutes. Uh, Number two is because of how God shares wealth. He's speaking specifically to favoritism for the rich here. Uh, This is interesting um, as he's calling out this broken value system and how you value certain people off of extrinsic things. He then talks to, well, what really is value and worth? What really is wealth? Um, and he says this. Notice this question. Has not, verse 5, God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? Isn't that interesting? He's, first he's saying your, your system's wrong because you're lifting up the rich over the poor, and that's not how God sees worth. But then he takes it back and goes, actually, I got another critique. You think wealth has to do with money. It's even more broken than I thought, right? He, he, he peels it back a little bit more and says, here's at the root. You think that rich man is more wealthy than the poor man because of his earthly riches. Jesus was confronted with a similar example in Luke chapter 12. There was one from the crowd that came to him, it says, and out of the crowd, it's, this, this is such an awesome interaction with Jesus. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus said to him, I love this, literally word for word, man. I love that Jesus said man. I love that. Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to him, check this out, take heed beware of co- and beware of covetousness. Notice this, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. The richness of your life is not connected to your riches. The, 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 the quality of your life does not consist, Jesus says, in the abundance of things he possesses. He goes on to tell a parable. He says, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully, produced a lot. His business was booming. And he thought within himself, saying, what shall I do? <laughs> what a great problem. I have too much. Well, pity me. What do I do with all this money? Okay? Since I have no room to store my crops. Mm, I don't have a bank account big enough for my money. So he said... I'll do this. I'll pull down my barns and build greater. Hoarders. There I will store all my crops and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. This is called secular humanism. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Tonight you're going to die. Then whose will the things be that you have provided? He says, so is he who lays up treasure for himself, listen, and is not rich toward God. Wow. Bob Marley was interviewed years ago. Again, the late great prophet Bob Marley. And he was asked this question by a reporter, are you a rich man? Bob Marley replied, replied, what do you mean rich? 
The man replies, you have a lot of possessions. Yeah, right? Money in the bank. And Bob Marley says, possessions make you rich? And the reporter's silent. It's an awesome interview. And here's Bob Marley quoting, looks like directly from Jesus, that true wealth is not built from earth up. It's built from heaven down. So Jesus says, lay up your treasures in heaven. Live your life for another life. Live your time here for eternity. Spend your money for eternity. Don't lay up your treasures in barns on earth where moth and rust are going to destroy, where thieves are going to break in and steal, and one day you're going to die and someone else is going to take it. Be a good steward of what God has entrusted to you, and then you'll find true wealth. True wealth. And here, it's, it's, here uh, James is talking about true wealth. He says there's a poor man and a rich man. The poor man, he's just got earthly treasures. He's got a currency that doesn't work in heaven. It doesn't work there. It doesn't impress everybody in heaven, right? Like, in heaven, the streets are paved with gold. So you show up with your bling. What's up? Got my gold, my rings. It's like, why are you wearing pavement? What's, what? That's, those are some sick asphalt earrings, man. I like that concrete necklace. What's up, bro? Let me see those tar rings. Dope. All right. Useless, useless, but the poor man, he found some useful riches. These are, these are riches of the kingdom. These are riches that will never be taken away from you and me. Let's lay up those treasures. And, and notice it's the rich man who's got that wealth. Um, that's why, you know, the Bible says this. Jesus said that the gospel is good news to the poor. Do we know this? So I heard recently, and this really challenged me, if the gospel you're preaching is not good news to the poor, it's not the gospel. Good news to the poor is what Jesus preached. Um, and on the other hand, Jesus said this, that it's actually hard for a rich man to enter heaven. Why is it that the gospel is good news for the poor, but it's hard for a rich man? Well, is it because... In order to receive the riches of heaven, you have to be poor. Jesus said it this way. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. It's hard for a rich man who has it all to be needy, isn't it? God, I need your riches. And be careful that we don't right now go, yeah, them. Do you live in America? It's hard for Americans to get to heaven. Like, like as hard as a camel squeezing through the eye of a needle, which is impossible nearly without God. It's so hard because it's hard for people who don't really know what it's like to depend on God to desperately need God, like poor people do. And they have to pray that God provides their next meal. And, and so to someone who has recognized, God, I'm, I'm nothing apart from you, the riches of God are poured out. And this is, by the way, this is the gospel. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 8, 7. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, you think God has money? You think God's wealthy? He owns it all. And though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. This is the good news of Jesus. That Jesus went to the cross, and though he was rich, he was a poor, he lived a life as a poor homeless carpenter. He went to the cross and emptied himself. And on that cross, he was treated as the poor sinners that we are so that we could be lavished richly with God's love and blessing today. 
It's the good news of Jesus. It's grace. It's grace, you've probably heard this before, right? God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace. The way that God shares wealth. And lastly, I'll invite the worship team to come up here. We're going to close here in a time of communion. Let's, let's end this last one out. You're going to be surprised by my last point. But it's also because of how God shows wrath. Let's read this last section of scripture. It says, if you really fulfill the law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbors yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you don't commit adultery, but you do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. Now, I've really fought hard about making my last W the word wrath. Like we're about to get into worship, wealth, yeah, amen, you know, worth, okay, wrath, huh, wrath. Now, I know for us it's a difficult word sometimes to swallow, uh, but the Bible uses it 197 times. For us, we think of wrath as a bad thing because often we've experienced it as a sinful expression. What, what, what actually the Bible encourages us not to be a part of. Like we, we as Christians, followers of Jesus, we're called to put off what are called outbursts of wrath. The person cuts you off and you tell them, you're number one, you know, that kind of stuff, all right? <laughs> outbursts of wrath, outbursts of wrath, anger. But we know God is not like that. God doesn't have outbursts of wrath. The Bible says that God is slow to anger. He's got the, he's got the, uh, the counsel of eternity to execute his will and his judgment. And his justice. When we talk about wrath, we're talking about something that's holy about God. We're talking about the justice of God. We're talking about a God that you and I desperately want to be like. This is who God is. The hard part with God's justice and wrath is it's a lot easier to stomach when it's on someone who's sinned against me. Get him, God. Or we see it on the news. And we can, especially in the day and age of social media and screens, we can sort of um, detach ourselves from evil and look at it through a screen and point at it like, like a fish tank, kind of go, oh, evil, sinfulness, those that are deserving of God's judgment and justice and wrath. But there's a point that James is making here about God's holy wrath. He's talking to these people who have been so judgmental towards people who don't fit their kind of person. And he says, here's the deal. By being judgmental, you are not fulfilling what he calls the royal law, the supreme law, the ultimate law, which is to love your neighbor. And by failing to keep that commandment, he says, you're a transgressor. You're a tra it's what he calls him, a tra you're a sinner. You've sinned against God. Well, I, well I, you know, I keep the other commandments. He says, it doesn't matter. Regardless of whether or not you commit adultery, you murder, what Jesus calls is the same thing as hate in your heart. Where you judge someone and you, it said earlier, with evil thoughts, you draw conclusions about people or you push down people because of external reasons, you have broken the whole law of God. You're a transgressor because the, the root issue of breaking the law is sinning against the holy God. This is what's at stake here. Regardless of what sins you tend to commit, what we all have in common is that we commit sin against God. A God who's just, a God who's holy, a God who's perfect, a God who's faithful. And there's something unique about how God shows his judgment. It's in Romans 2, in light of this, that it tells us in Romans 2 as well as Romans 4. I'll show you Romans 4. It says, the law brings about 
wrath. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. Where there's no commands, we're keeping them. <laughs> where there's no rules, we're pretty good, right? But then when the law comes in, I go, oh, I'm a sinner. No matter what it is, whether it's judging someone or committing adultery, I've sinned against God. And the result of that is God's holy wrath. And it goes on to say also in Romans 1 that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, notice this, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. This is interesting. So God's taking this person who's kind of like the, the self-righteous man, yeah, man, I'm not like them. I'm, I'm not like those people. And he's going, well, you're not loving, and that's one of my commands, and so you are like them. You're like everybody else. You're a sinner who's fallen short of the glory of God. And when it comes to how God shows judgment, what, what Paul goes on to tell us is that God doesn't show it with favoritism. He doesn't, he's not a little more lenient on some people, a little hard on, maybe you feel like that God's really hard on you. He's not like that. God is consistent across the board. He's always only perfectly holy and just in a good way. So how does he show his wrath? How does he judges us all fairly, equally? We've all sinned. There's no partiality with God is what he goes on to say. Kind of a thesis for our whole study today. But the good news of the gospel is this. God is also impartial with how he shows grace. He's not partial with who he judges for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Yet in Romans, there's this great truth that there is no difference between Jew and Greek. There is no difference with your religious background. There's no difference of how far you feel from God. God's grace is God's grace. And he doesn't show partiality to people who kind of deserve it and people who don't. Just as his wrath is fair and just, his grace is fair and just. And here's the reason. Because one man who was more than a man named Jesus stood in our place. And as he hung on a cross, the wrath of God that we deserve, the justice of God that we deserve for our sin was fully absorbed in him. Fully. Paul says, we are by nature children of wrath, but we've obtained grace. Jesus took upon himself, he shouldered the, the consequence of my sin so that today you and I could stand here forgiven, made holy. The Bible says that God justifies us. He makes us right. And he's able to remain just because he put it on his son. And so James closes with this idea that in light of this fact, in light of the fact that we all stand guilty before God, deserving of his wrath, and in light of the fact that you have been given his grace, notice what he says, this last thought here, so speak <laughs> and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. This is the gospel. We're going to stand before God, and, and there's not going to be this measure of, of how we did according to the law of Moses, but we are going to be measured according to the law of liberty, what Jesus did. Every single person, the Bible says, it's appointed once for man to die and then judgment. Every single human. The question is, what kind of judgment will you get? Is it going to be a judgment that you try to be good enough to earn God's favor? Or can you stand there under the testimony of what Jesus did for you? It's the law of liberty. And, and James is saying, when you encounter that, when you experience the truth of God's love through Jesus, what's going to happen in your life is that same mercy that you've received, you're going to show it to others. It's going to come right through you. That mercy that God overwhelms in your heart, it triumphs over the judgmental spirit we tend to have. It triumphs. 
That's the good news of the gospel. Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. If you'd like to visit us in person, we gather at Don Estridge High Tech Middle School in Boca Raton, Florida, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more sermon content and information, you can check out soulschurch.com.